Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. We'll be in verses 26 through 39. Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the, the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people surrounding the country of Gerasenes asked him to depart from the city, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be within him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. C.S. Lewis once wrote this about demons, which we encountered in the text. He said, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. And I think we know in our post-Christian modern culture where most of us tend to land, where it is not on our radar from day to day, just normal everyday life, thinking about like, yes, Satan is real and the, the demonic activity in our world is real. And when we do think about demons, it may even be in a way where we like lampoon or make fun of something. Last night we were out for our anniversary dinner and just walking down 6th Street Mall between two places. And there was a guy there kind of just shrieking at people as they walked by that he was, he was the mother of Satan. And I think we can look at that and be like, that's so crazy and just dismiss out of hand the whole idea that there actually is a sat satanic realm that the scripture talks about. So to broaden this text so we don't just immediately find it not applicable to us because you're not demon-possessed, I want to remind you of what an, an apostle said in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, which is our assumption, like these people in my life that are causing me pain. That's where the problems are. And he's saying, that's actually not our real struggle or our deepest struggle, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil 
in the heavenly places. And that's the reality of our struggle. And some of you may even catch glimpses of that from time to time. You're like, this struggle in my life right now, this conflict that makes no sense, it's almost like there's something dark and sinister behind it that's causing this much pain between me and this other person or me and this situation that shouldn't be bringing this much pain. So again, as we go to the text, there is a literal demon possession, a man that's often referred to historically as the maniac of Gadara. He is actually demon possessed, okay? But I wanna show you this morning that this is kind of paradigmatic, that what we encounter in this story is not just like, oh, that one guy that had the demons, but it's more like showing us an illustration of the fact that sin, idolatry in our lives, is incredibly possessive. I always remember this in high school. They would say, like, uh, a boy was very possessive of a girl, and, like, no one else could talk to her because, like, that's my girl. And, and you hate that when you see it from the outside. You're like, Ugh. Like, why can't you just allow her to have other friends and have normal relationships? Well, sin is like that. It's, it's incredibly possessive. And what I mean is we very often think that we are in control. We are making the choices about what we love, what we serve, what we fear, what we treasure at any given moment. And the reality is very often those things have taken control of us. And they are manipulating us. Rebecca Pippert, in her book, Out of the Salt Shaker, shares this that I always find helpful. She says, whatever controls us is our Lord. Let me say that again. Whatever controls us is our Lord. The person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people he or she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our lives. And to take that one step further, some of the things that control us are very, not only powerful, but they are addictive and they are oppressive, okay? So when we come to this man in the story and we see a man who we wouldn't say he was addicted, but he was, he was controlled, he was oppressed. He was beat down in a way where he was not free to control his own life. I want us to look at our own lives and say, is it possible that I'm dealing with something in my life that has the same kind of ruinous power and I can't break free. And for some of you, you may say that's, that's almost like a, a chemical addiction to like drugs or alcohol. You're like, I, I wish that this thing didn't enslave me, but if I'm honest with myself, it does. And I try to break free of its power, but over and over again, I find myself going back. Or it could be a sex addiction or an addiction to money or an addiction to power or an addiction to negative self-talk. You're always seeing the worst in yourself and in everyone and in everything. Or it could just be an addiction to like hating that person that hurts you. And you're like, I want to be over this control of bitterness in my own heart because it's not helping me, but I can't break its power. Or maybe it's just an addiction to making life all about yourself. And you're like, I wish I was more selfless, more generous with my time, with my money, with the abilities God's given me, but I'm not. And I, and I keep trying. And what I'm saying to all of us is there's hope because this story illustrates two very important things. One is how sin exerts its power. And two is how Jesus breaks that power. Now, to confuse you a little bit, those are not the two points of my sermon. Here are the three points of my sermon, okay? So the three points of the message this morning, uh, this text in Luke is going to show us how sin destroys us. It's going to show us how Jesus delivers us, and it's going to show us how salvation disrupts everything. 
and thankfully for our good, okay? So I say how sin destroys us. And again, what I want to do here is not to say that guy, demon-possessed, he's kind of like off by himself. We can't relate. No, we can relate to everything going on in this text. And this text shows us six ways that sin destroys us. Now, let's take a moment with each of these. But number one, sin isolates One of the ways that sin destroys us, you notice that this man, because of the control of the demons in his life, he is isolated from the rest of his culture. He doesn't have normal relationships. He's literally like off in the desert on the far side of the Sea of Galilee, the uninhabited side of the Sea of Galilee. He's he's isolated. He's living alone. And he's rejecting Jesus initially as this demon speaks through him and says like, what do we have to do with you? Get away from us. Because sin is isolating. Number two, sin destroys us by humiliating. Sin humiliates. And you see this picture of a man, and if you could have rolled up on the the beach or in the desert that day, the different gospels picture this man who's like literally naked, unclothed. He's shrieking with these hideous sounds coming out of his body. The Bible says that he's cutting himself and bruising himself with rocks. And you would look at this person as maybe even some of you look at some of the people you walk by from day to day and just think, like, how shameful, how sad. Like, what a tragic picture of what sin is doing to this man because sin humiliates. Thirdly, sin defiles. And you see him here, he's living among the tombs. He's, he's like crouching and leaping over the tombs. And he's like just madman in amongst the dead, which in that culture would have not just been a, like, like not medically safe thing to be around dead bodies, but it was a purification thing where he would have been considered unclean on top of the fact that he had unclean spirits indwelling him. So sin defiles. Fourthly, sin enslaves. And you see this here where he is utterly controlled. He is at the mercy of demons. He is not a free thinker, like going where he wants, doing what he wants, dressing how he wants. He is completely dominated He is controlled. He is enslaved. And then these other people come along, and because they can't control him, they try to shackle him with these additional chains just to control his fury and just to control his power. So sin enslaves. Now, this one's interesting. Sin also renames. Sin renames. And what I mean here is, like, your your name is tied to your identity. And if I were to say different people's names that you know, you're immediately not just thinking like, oh, Bob or John or President Biden. I mean, we could talk about famous people or athletes or whatever, but you immediately associate an identity with that person. And what's interesting here is when Jesus comes to this man, the, the voice from him is, is saying, I am legion for we are many. And what you see is sin renaming him, sin giving him a different identity at the core of who he was created to be initially. And then finally, you see that sin kills. And uh, thankfully, this man is delivered, as we'll see. But the demons go into this herd of pigs who are just off grazing in their slop over here. And the demons drive them off this cliff into the sea where they all drown. And what the story is intended to show you is that graphic, violent end of that herd of pigs, that's what the demons had intended for this man to end his life in a very violent way. So Philip Graham Ryken, a pastor, summarizes the story this way. He says, he was naked, lonely, violent, and insane. He was walking among the dead. Yet even for all his misery, we can see ourselves 
in his situation because sin has similar effects on all of us. It exposes us naked in our guilt. It alienates us from one another, leaving us lonely and alone. It makes us violent, at least in our attitudes, if not our actions. Spiritually speaking, we walk among the dead. Thus, the madman in the graveyard shows the wretchedness of our condition outside of Christ. What Jesus is showing us is like sin is this great big satanic lie. We can all find ourselves in this story because our idols come. And why do we serve idols? It's because, it's because of what they promise us. It's like, I will give you power. I will give you authority. I will give you pleasure. I will give you prosperity. I will give you freedom. I will give you satisfaction. I will give you a sense of self-worth, a sense of identity. And so we go after these things and we're like, that's what I want. I want the power. I want the control over my own life. I want the freedom to do what I want to do. I want pleasure. I want those things. And you're telling me I can have those things. And then the idols just flip the script and they're like, gotcha. And what's important to note is that an idol is always killing its host. It's always after you. When you think you're in control, it's actually in control. I always think of this funny story of like when you walk in King Supers and some other grocery stores, they have these shopping carts with the little steering wheels in them. Have you seen these? So that the, your children, you know, instead of just doing it like when I was a kid where you're supposed to sit backwards and it's boring because you're just sitting there looking at your parent the entire time as they steer you around. Like these are awesome because they're like a little car and you're sitting there with this steering wheel. And like to see these children get in arguments with their parents because they're like, no, I want the car one. And their parents are just like, look, we just got to grab like three things. So they have the little basket and they're like, we're not even doing the buggy today. Buggy, I don't that's very British or something. We're not doing the shopping cart today. And, but do you see the kids like, no, I have to. And then you, you, you see the kids in the grocery store and they think they're turning the wheel to the right and their parents going left. And like, to me, that's such a picture of idolatry that we're like, no, I must be in control. And it's like the fake steering wheel. And like you're turning and you're doing things and you may even pat yourself on the back for a while and be like, I am totally in control. And it's just taking you somewhere else because that steering is actually not connected to any steering mechanism in your life. And again, what Jesus is doing with this first point, what Luke is sharing with us is that I think we are meant to, again, apart from Jesus, associate with, identify with this picture of oppression. Because some of you could sit there this morning and say, yeah, I feel isolated by sin. Like, sin doesn't sin do this? Like, you, you get in an argument with someone that you love, and you don't feel close-knit together. You can be side-by-side side and feel worlds apart because sin isolates Sin isolates you. Sin, sin humiliates, as I said. And some of you may be sitting here this morning and may, may even be like, I have a hard time walking into church or walking into my gospel community group because it's almost like other people can look at me and like they know what I'm struggling with and their eyes are like looking at me with judgment. And hopefully that's not true in church, but I think sometimes we know better because we ourselves are judgmental and we feel a humiliation that we're walking around with like if people knew the real me, they wouldn't like me because sin humiliates. Some of you may feel that. Some of you may feel like that uncleanness or that unworthiness of like, again, like I don't, I don't deserve God's love because I'm, I'm like filthy sometimes. Um, many of you feel that dominated, addicted, and I, I listed several of those ways that you could experience that. Um, you may feel like I'm owning this identity that I'm trying to disown, but I 
can't get distance and I'm on a path to ruin. And I just want to say, if that's, if that's you and you can identify with any of those things, Jesus wants you to walk out of here this morning with a hope and an encouragement that maybe you didn't walk in with. And so this is point two. That's, that's what sin does to you. That's how sin destroys you. Now, let's look at how Jesus delivers you. And this first point, as simple as it is, is important. Because the first thing Jesus does to this man and to you and to me is Jesus comes. And if I were to show you the entire context of this story, it's actually remarkable. And uh, like Marty, my wife and I were talking about how like this little tidbit, like when you read a story in isolation of the stories around it, you're kind of like, oh, that's such a cool story. And then you see the context and you're like, holy cow. So the holy cow here is like, if you had read this story before this, like Jesus is preaching, doing miracles on the other side of the sea. And he tells his disciples at the end of the day, get in a boat and go across the sea to the other side. And they get in the boat and go across the sea with, with Jesus. He falls asleep in the boat. There's this big storm, right, on the Sea of Galilee. And they wake up, Jesus, Master, do you not care that we're going to die? We're going to drown. We're going to capsize. And he wakes up and just says, hush, be quiet to the, to the Sea of Galilee. And it just stops. So that's the story right before this. Jesus gets off the boat, delivers this one guy of demon oppression, gets back in the boat, and goes back to Galilee. So it's incredible to think Jesus comes. And we sang this morning about the reckless love of Jesus. And some of you are like, I don't, I don't like that. It's not reckless. It's very well-intentioned, which of course it is. But it's speaking from our human limited perspective that sometimes we're like, wait, Jesus, you put all of your disciples in peril in the middle of like a hurricane on the ocean to go across to meet one madman to deliver him just to go back? Like, what's that about? Well, that's about Jesus coming. It's about Jesus coming. And he doesn't just cross an ocean for you and me, which was actually a lake. He crosses this invisible divide between heaven and eternity past and earth to become a human being to come to us, to deliver us. So it's important that Jesus comes. And even if you're the one and you feel like Jesus would never come for me, he's too busy with these other people, bigger, more important things. Jesus is never too busy with these other two big, two important things to come to you as you cry out to him in your need. So Jesus comes. Then secondly, Jesus restores. And let me just show you how all the things I just mentioned that sin does, how Jesus is just on the flip side of those things where he's undoing, or I could say reversing the curse of sin. So where sin isolates, Jesus welcomes. You notice that he is not holding this man at arm's length and like, oh, I'm, I'm terrified of you. You can continue to be alone, isolated in the desert. Jesus goes into the desert and engages a conversation with this man, strikes up a conversation, says, you are welcome in my world. Where sin, number two, humiliates, Jesus covers. And we don't know at what point in this story it happens, but as Jesus is delivering him in, in many, many aspects of his life, we find him at the end of this story and he's sitting at Jesus' feet, learning like a disciple, clothed. And that clothing the physical clothing is a sign of covering his sin, covering his shame, covering even the scars and the gashes and the bruises that were all over his body. Jesus is like, I'm covering that past. This is no longer who you are. Thirdly, where sin defiles, Jesus cleanses, bringing him out of the tomb, welcoming him, not just as a famous rabbi, but welcoming him as the son of God, saying, you are not unclean to me if I make you clean. You are not unclean if the unclean spirits have to depart. 
okay? We're sin and slaves. Jesus liberates. He's obviously the one speaking to these demons and saying like, yeah, your time's up. You have to go. You have to release your grip on this man. You cannot control his life. So Jesus liberates. Um, you notice at the end of the story where, where sin has renamed him and said, I am legion for we are many. Well, legion is gone. And now this man, and the Bible doesn't tell us his name because I think, again, we're, we're not meant to just see him as like, I don't know what his name was. Like, what's a great, his, it's not just Isaac, you know. It's like he's a paradigm of all of us. But Jesus has renamed him in the sense of Jesus has given him a completely new and transformed identity. He is no longer just the shrieking madman that no one can control. He is given this new identity. And then uh, just, just to kind of encapsulate this, and I didn't say this before, but it just strikes me how sin is incredibly dehumanizing. What I mean is like, God made you for all these beautiful, incredible, amazing purposes. He made you for his glory. He made you to experience joy and peace and contentment and satisfaction and all these things in him. But sin just comes along and it dehumanizes. It just strips us of our humanity on level after level after level. And what I see is um, like just, just this word, this idea of Jesus humanizes. And one of the ways that he's restoring us is he's just putting us back to who we were always meant to be. And that's both a one-time deliverance, like what this man experiences, but it's also a day-to-day walk with Jesus where in becoming more like him and being transformed into his image, we're actually becoming more and more fully and authentically human over time as we do life with Jesus. And I want you to hear this, that when I say Jesus welcomes and covers and cleanses and liberates and renames us and humanizes us, what that means is whoever you are in here this morning or joining us online, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever has been done to you, you may be like, you don't, you don't understand my family of origin. Well, your family of origin is not worse than being embodied by a legion of demons, okay? And I'm, I'm not saying that to make fun, I'm saying he had a horrible backstory. And Jesus is like, I I can deliver you. I will deliver you from that. Whatever your sources of addiction and oppression, the picture you're meant to see in this text is Jesus wants you to come to him as he's coming to you, initiating a conversation, initiating a deliverance and letting us accept it. I want you to note something else in this text. Um, I just said Jesus initiated so this is so important, and this is how grace so often works. Sometimes we look at our lives and we're like, I feel like I initiated a conversation with God, or I initiated, like, God, I'm so, 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 so sorry for my sin, for my idols, for seeking pleasure in these other things. Will you please forgive me? And it, you may feel like I've initiated, but in this story, this man is so utterly helpless. He is not like, oh, I've heard of a rabbi. I've heard of the Son of God. I've heard of the Messiah. Let me, let me go find him. He's just off completely doing his own thing with no ability, with no freedom to even go seek the Messiah, let alone find him. So Jesus goes to him and the grace is initiating in his life. And it's the grace that actually enables the man then to repent and to put his faith in Jesus. And we know that he's done that because there at the end of the story, what is repentance? It's a, it's a transformation of heart. It's a change of mind. And you see this man like sitting at, the, at Jesus' feet as a disciple, like the posture of a, an apprentice of like, Jesus, I want to follow you. And I believe that you're God and that you're greater than what's oppressed me. And then the last thing here about 
um, or sorry, two, two things here, like real quick about what Jesus is doing to deliver. I want you to notice he's not only coming to him and restoring him, but now the third thing is Jesus commissions him. So he's not only saved from this control and this domination and this oppression and this hideous appearance and this hideous uncontrolled life, but Jesus is saying, I saved you from that. Now I saved you too. And notice what he says. He says, go and declare how much God has done for you. So he's sending him out with a message. Just tell people your story. Just tell people who you were and what you struggled with and how you were powerless to overcome. Just tell people the salvation story. Tell people the good news of the bondage breaker. And what's incredible is like next line. So he goes away from Jesus because he understands my mission is not just to physically follow Jesus around Galilee or Judea. My mission is to go tell other people. I have a purpose of basically casting more seed into more lives with more good news that can touch more people. And it says he goes and proclaims how much Jesus had done for him. And and that's cool because he's not only obedient, but again, if you were to juxtapose what Jesus told him to do and what he actually did do, who does he understand Jesus is? Because Jesus has said, go tell them how much God has done for you. And it says he's going off and telling them how much Jesus did for him. Because he understands Jesus is God. No one has authority like this over the devils except God. Okay, so Jesus commissions him. He has a purpose. And then the last thing under here uh, with his deliverance is that Jesus exchanges. And this is such an important point because up to this point, it's just like, oh, that's so cool. Like Jesus goes across the ocean, teaches his disciples a lesson about fear and faith and all that. But then like heals this guy and then goes back to where he's popular and, and everything's good, right? No, it's not. Because In every salvation story that includes Jesus, every real salvation story includes an exchange, like what we read here. So you notice the isolated, crazy man who is demon-possessed is now completely transformed where he is now accepted by people. So he's off being able to say, this is what Jesus did for me. This is what God did for me. And people are listening to his story. And some of them are putting their faith in Jesus as well. So he's accepted, but Jesus gets the rejection. Did you notice that in the text? Like he's, he's healing, he's transforming this other person's life, but at the same time, the very people who are like, yes, now we accept you, now we're listening to your story, and they turn to Jesus and they're like, please get out. And I'll explain that in a moment, but they're like, leave. Okay, we accept him, but we reject you. You need to get out of our region. And there's this incredible exchange, and I want you to know this, this incredible exchange is still going on today that for any of us to experience all of these things, that for, for Jesus to welcome us and to cleanse our sin and to forgive us and to give us a new identity and to rehumanize us, Jesus is always giving up something in order to do that. Um, Bertrand Russell, who's a, a famous British philosopher and author, actually pointed to this story and said, this is a major reason why I will never believe in Jesus. You say, What? And it's like, well, the, the senseless drowning of all those pigs? Like, I would, why, why would I put my faith in someone who allows, you know, all that, that bacon to be destroyed, you know? It's basically what he's saying. Like, I can't believe in a God who would do that. But it, it was just kind of missing the point, because the point is not so much that, that Jesus did that, 
But Jesus is giving us a very graphic and undeniable demonstration of this is what the demons intended for the man, okay? And Jesus is like, would you rather pigs die, like an unclean animal in that culture, or would you rather have this man be dominated, be, be horrible in his entire experience, and then still die and be separated from God forever? But there's this exchange still going on today where people point at the story and be like, I could never believe And I said that this exchange happens with all of us because there's a day coming where Jesus is going to go to a cross and he's gonna like literally be like, in order for you to be accepted by the Father, I am willing to be rejected by the Father. And there's an exchange. Jesus takes our outsider position, gives us the insider position, and he becomes the outsider punished by God, the Father, for what we deserve. You know, we get this seat of honor where we were growing up with shame and isolation in our sin, and we get this seat of honor, like seated at the table as the sons and daughters of God, and Jesus takes this humiliation because he's the one naked on a cross, exposed, beaten, bloodied, like this man was. Jesus is defiled to give us cleansing. Jesus is nailed down to a cross to give us liberation. Jesus is renamed in order to give us a new name. And you're like, what what do you mean? And it's like, do you know the Bible says, not only, it doesn't just say like Jesus took our sin and paid for our sin. It says he became sin for us who knew no sin. He became sin. He was identified with your sin and my sin and our brokenness in order to set us free. He took this whole new identity as like a criminal worthy of death in order to give us a new identity. And then of course he gives us life at the cost of his life. And N.T. Wright summarizes what I'm talking about here so wonderfully when he says this. He says, at the climax of the gospel story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on the cross by the standard of Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the small stones in the Roman lash. And that is how the demons are to be dealt with. That is how healing takes place. Jesus is coming to share the plight of the people, to let the enemy do its worst to him, to take the full force of evil on himself and let all others go free. That's the exchange. And the exchange is not just for that one man. That exchange is available to all those who put their faith in Jesus. So let me close with this. And I said, there's also in the story, not just the, the, uh, the bondage and the freedom, but there's this disruption. Let me close with that. How salvation disrupts everything. Because I think if you just listen to the first two points, you're like, who would not accept that trade? You're telling me the oppression the shame, the isolation, the bondage, all of that for freedom and cleansing and hope in Christ. Like who would not accept that exchange? Everyone would do that except for point three because salvation is disruptive. Okay, and what I mean is at the beginning of the story to the end of the story, things that were upside down are now right side up. But things that are right side up seemingly end up upside down and Jesus leaves. So let me show you these two things. And these are kind of like the the application for us, okay? First of all, you have to relinquish the false sense of control to be truly free. 
you have to relinquish the false sense of control. Now, verse 29, I want you to notice this. It says, the demoniac was seized by evil spirits. It's a word that means he was snatched by force and he was dominated. And we've already talked about that point where he is not a free man. He is controlled by the influence of something that's more powerful than him, completely bound. So what do others do to him? You have a man who's completely under the control of demons. He's completely bound. He's already shackled spiritually. He's out of control. So, so human beings come along and they're like, I know our solution is let's chain him. And the words used here are the idea of like wrist irons and feet shackles. Of like, what, what, what do we do with a person that we can't control? We try to control them. And isn't that so like our world? We don't like the things controlling us. We don't like other people that don't have control over themselves. And so what do we do? We, we layer more layers of control on top of them. More rules, more regulations, more boundaries, more discipline. And we're like, that'll fix it. My kids aren't in control. These kids in my class at school are not in control. These patients are not in control. So what do we do? We, we put more burdens on them. We talked about that last week with the religious leaders. What do we do to control people who already don't have control? We put more controls on them. That, that's the only solution that religion in the world have. It's, it's incredible, and it's incredibly stupid. But as we talked about last week, it's this outside-in approach to transformation. We, we can't liberate this guy, so what do we do? Just try to control him from the outside-in. And I'll give you just one example of how this goes. It's like a porn addict who's like, okay, I'll give up internet access on my phone. And then that doesn't work. So you're like, okay, I'll install accountability software on my home computer. And then I'll only surf like in a public place. And I'll, I'll read a book on what my sex addiction is doing to all the relationships in my life. And, and maybe I'll even take medication to control my urges. Um, do any of those things transform your heart? No. And you and I may know people, and I don't mean with pornography in particular or adultery or something like that, but you and I know people that have an addiction that's controlling them, and they have tried and tried and tried all these layers of boundaries and controls and rules, and I'll do this and I'll do this. And look, don't hear me wrong. Like, I'm not opposed to taking practical steps to break the power of something in your life, like accountability. That's not the point. My point is we clearly need more than this. We clearly need something other than a false sense of control over the things that are controlling us. And here is the disruptive good news of Jesus in this story. He comes to this man and is like, I didn't come to shackle your demons with stronger irons. I came to liberate you. This is the most incredible thing in this story is that Jesus is the one person who can walk in your life and be like, I didn't come to put more control, more boundaries, more rules on top of the thing that's already controlling you. I'm the one who came to just break all the bondage altogether and truly set you free so that you're human again. And if you want God to set you free, if you want to stop playing around with that thing that you think you control, but in moments of lucidity, you're like, it has me, I don't have it. Then Jesus, the invitation is like, come to me, the great liberator, the great bondage breaker, and I want to give you freedom, not more constraint, not more rules. It's such good news, okay? So that's the, the first disruptive power we see here. But there's a second one, and that is you have to relinquish, relinquish your agenda 
to enjoy God's redemptive mission. You have to relinquish your agenda to enjoy God's redemptive mission. And let me show you this negatively and then positively and then I'm done. Negatively, how did the townspeople react to this miracle? Were they like, yeah, Jesus, we have watched this man for years just beat himself to a pulp. What a great liberator. We fall on our knees and we worship you. No, they, verse 35 and verse 37 says they're afraid. Of what? And I think there's actually two fears here in verse 35, which was their initial fear. What they're fearing is we are in the presence of someone who controls what we could never control. There is, there is some kind of awesome power here in this person, Jesus, that is instilling this sense of awe. And like the hair on the back of our necks is standing up because Jesus is just like, Legion, be gone. And we see the effects of this sin and this evil and this wickedness over here on this swine. So the initial thing is like, it's, it's just like this story before it. Remember, like the disciples are asleep in the boat or sorry, Jesus is asleep in the boat, in the middle of the storm. And the disciples are like, master, we're going to die. And Jesus is just like, hush. And the sea is like glass. It's not just the winds that went away. The sea is like glass. And how the disciples respond, yay, Jesus, you're awesome. No, it's, it says they're afraid. Because again, like, who then is this, is their question. Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? We're in the presence of awesome power. And that's the initial fear, verse 35. But verse 37, let me suggest to you that this is now their settled fear. This is not their initial fear. It's a different kind of fear. And, and what you hear them saying in verse 37 is, if Jesus sticks around, everything is going to change. And it's not going to be business as usual. And the people are afraid because they're like, Jesus, you, you just drove these pigs into the sea and we've lost our way of making business. And uh, cool for what you do for the guy, but um, we had a business and it was going well for us. Sorry for him, but it was going well for us. And you just wrecked that. And we're afraid if you stick around and keep doing stuff like this, what's it going to cost us? And I discovered this poem a few years ago by John Oxenham. Um, entitled Gadara, which is the region where Jesus did this miracle. It's called Gadara AD 31. And just listen to this for a moment. This is spoken from the perspective of the townspeople, saying, Rabbi, be gone. Thy powers bring loss to us and ours. Our ways are not as thine. Thou lovest men, we swine. Oh, get you hence, omnipotence, and take this fool of thine. His soul? What care we for his soul? What good to us that thou hast made him whole, since we have lost our swine? And that's why I say you have to relinquish your agenda if you want to enjoy God's redemptive mission. Because we will always have things where we're like, well, too bad for them, but I controlled this thing in my life well enough that I was getting something back from it to keep doing it. And Jesus, you just walk in and, and just disrupt all of that. And, and listen, to the degree that your values and your priorities don't line up with God's, grace will disrupt you in really maddening ways. And, and that's what they're mad about. They're mad about grace. They're mad about the mercy of Jesus. And again, they're not feeling this affection, this sympathy, or this empathy for this man who's like sitting there clothed in his right mind, like 
for the first time in his life maybe being like, I know God and I trust God. They're just like, what do we care about him? We lost everything or we lost something valuable to us. And, and the more we're just like, I got to have my own agenda, the grace and the mercy of Jesus will disrupt you, I said, in maddening ways. Going back to college, we had these, uh, we had these events, a series of concerts and operas and uh, Shakespearean plays and all that. And typically the professors were nice enough not to schedule a major test after one of these like late night events. Because you're like, I need to study and I don't want to be at this event from like 7 to 10.30 or whatever it was. But nevertheless, uh, my Greek teacher um, scheduled a, a major Greek test. And I mean like not, not modern Greek, like ancient Greek, like what the New Testament's written in. So this is like you're trying to learn a dead language and prepare for this major test, and it's like right after this all night, you know, late night event. So I like get home late and just like pull an all nighter, just study, 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 and uh, roll into class the next day. And the teacher's like, "Hey, I got good news for everybody. Um, I'm gonna postpone the test." And it was a Friday. He's like, "I'm gonna postpone the test till Monday, so that everyone has the weekend to study." And uh, there's like, there's applause and there's cheering and like, everybody's like, yes, you're the best teacher in the entire wide world. And I'm like, I hate you. Like I despise, like what? And I, and I hate all the rest of you too, by the way, like, because like, what, what is wrong with you people? And, and, and what was happening is like my agenda that day was actually like, I can go back and be like, this, this was my mental state was like, I have an opportunity to demonstrate my like incredible work ethic. So I'm going to go home after this late night event and I'm going to study so hard and still ace this test. And so Grace shows up the next morning and I'm like, oh, I hate Grace. I think I feel a little differently now even to be able to share that story because it's, it's embarrassing just to be like, really, you hate other people having a couple extra days and opportunity to, to study? Why, why do you care so much? Well, because I had my agenda like proving something about me. God had his agenda. And if we're not willing to be disrupted by the redemptive mission of Jesus and let go and just be like, maybe these things just aren't that important to me anymore. Maybe I don't have to prove myself. Whatever your thing is, then you're never gonna enjoy it. So that's, that's kind of the negative. Positively, and just real quick, like, you know, he just turns to the healed man and is like, son, go tell everyone how much God has done for you. And he's like, accept my mission. I have a new vocation for you. Like, you get to be an ambassador of this life-transforming, soul-liberating grace that you've received. And the guy's like, awesome, I'm in. Because he, he was desperately in need of grace. He knew he needed grace. Or he had no hope. And I just want to end with us. What about, what about us? Like, are we going to let Jesus come into our lives and welcome him, receive him and say, yeah, disrupt what you want to disrupt here? Because I know you're not here to put more controls, more constraints, more rules on, on me. You're actually here to set me free. And I want that freedom. So um, I, I want to intentionally just give you this theme one more time, but say it in kind of a provocative way. Okay. So here's the theme of what we just read. It is be captivated by the love of God. I'm saying that on purpose. Be captivated by. Can we say, like, we just got to celebrate our 10th anniversary, and it can be like, I'm, I'm captivated by the love and the faithfulness and the character and the faith of my wife, and it doesn't feel like bondage. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm captivated, and we mean that in a positive way. 
but it is like a captivity because I'm like, I pledge myself only to you. I'm not like on the market just doing whatever I want with my mind and my thoughts and my desires and my body. It's like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm captive to you, but it's beautiful. It's liberating. It's life-giving. So be captivated by the love of God who liberates the oppressed. Be captivated by the love of God who liberates the oppressed.